Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com, to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. My guest today is Robin Lee, principal at GGV Capital. GGV is a global venture capital fund that invests in seed to grow stage companies. Some of their companies include Airbnb, Poshmark, Alibaba, and Peloton. This was a dream episode for me when I was first thinking of starting a podcast about consumer venture capital. Robin Lee was at the top of my list. She was one of the people that I really wanted to have on the show. So I am so thrilled that we were finally able to have this conversation. We discuss how GGV makes decisions at a global scale, what opportunities in consumer internet Robin is most focused on, and how she thinks about bringing small businesses online. Without further ado, here's Robin. Robin, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for being here. I'm so glad that we're able to do this. I wanted to start at the very beginning. What attracted you to venture capital and how did you wind up at GGV? Yeah, it's quite a long story here. I (laughs) did not come from a very traditional path. So before I was in venture, I was actually an educator. I spent three years in Teach for America. I was teaching special ed at middle school. Um, I taught all subjects and then became a school administrator. And then I went to business school after that, thinking that I was going to change the world by getting a lot of lasting impact through the public sector. I actually started to learn a lot more about entrepreneurship. So I went to Business School at University of Chicago at the Booth School of Business, and I started volunteering at a local Chicago community with startups and accelerators. And that's when I really got to learn more about startups and tech and entrepreneurship. So I was like, wow, this is a very different way to make a lot of impact in the world. And was very curious and took a chance and applied to an internship at Ximing, which was at that time, I didn't know, <laughs> a top VC in China, which is where I met Hans Tong, who is uh, my mentor, my boss, and kind of, you know, the person I've been working with you know, for the past seven and a half years. <laughs> Little did I know he was on the Forbes Midas list and one of the top VCs in the world. And um, after meeting Hans, I think, you know, my perspective really changed and um, started to really get into venture I was really lucky to have been in China at that time. I remember it was 2013 and WeChat has just started taking off. It didn't even have mobile wallet yet. You know, Fab was still on the rise and <laughs> like Waze just got sold. Uber just hit a billion <laughs> valuation. It was like very different world <laughs> today. But yeah, I think since then I haven't turned back and have been spending all these years since in inventor. That's awesome. What was your initial attraction towards and your focus towards consumer internet as opposed to like enterprise SaaS, for example? I really loved consumer because I had spent actually a lot of time in retail and e-commerce. So when I was in college, I had actually worked at um, J. Crew as a personal shopper. I spent a couple of years at Banana Republic as well. At that time, J. Crew was like on the rise under, you know, my 
um, Mick Drexler. And so it was really amazing to see what that was like. I also spent six years selling cell phone plans to consumers in my local town. And so got to touch a lot of consumer and, and retail. And when I was in college, I also interned at Moody's for two years covering consumer goods, retail, beverage products, etc. And so I still remember as an intern, and this was before the market crash of 08, I had, you know, got a chance to sit in a room on the top floor at Moody's and we were, I had a client and the client was uh, Amazon. And, and they were there and like, it wasn't even like something that big at that time. So yeah, like interns got to go <laughs> so it was like sitting in the room and like little did I know how lucky I was to have been there. So I've always loved consumer and was really lucky to be, to be able to kind of be a part of investing in consumer internet and digital economy these last seven years. That's amazing. That's amazing. That's quite a story being there in Moody's on the top floor with uh, about Amazon. That's, that, that's pretty special and awesome. Well, I don't think Jeff Bezos was in the room, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm definitely, I'm pretty sure the finance team was. <laughs> that's awesome. Give us a little bit of background in terms of GGV. I know you invest multi-stage, but but just kind of give us a little bit of background. That'd be super helpful. Yeah, so GGV Capital has been around for two decades. We have roots in Singapore and Silicon Valley. So I'm actually based here in New York, but I have a lot of colleagues in Menlo Park in San Francisco. We have an office in Singapore that covers Southeast Asia and India. And then we also have two offices in China, which cover, you know, which is Beijing and Shanghai and covers most, mostly all of China. So um, we're a very global fund. We act as one team. We, you know, have a global investment committee and we're also multi-stage. So we currently manage a bit over 9 billion of assets under management, investing out of Fund 8, which is a $2.5 billion fund. So we do anything from early stage, like Seed Series A, to late stage up to kind of like a pre-IPO round as well. But I would say our sweet spot is, you know, A, Bs, and Cs, but we're very flexible, <laughs> which is great. I love the fact that we're vertical specific and stage agnostic. So you can really dive deep into the sectors that, you know, you're excited about and have the chance to invest even if you miss something later on. That's really helpful. I love to focus on the early stage, like the seed, series A, series B uh, sides. When you're looking at companies in those maybe three stages, what are some elements that you look for that could be positive signs, maybe in traction, if there's certain metrics that you think are uh, most telling about a company? That would just be really great to hear. Definitely, it comes down to a lot of the founding team. What we want to get to know in the initial meetings is like, why did you decide to do this? And also like, why now? And it's really around like founder market fit. And like, can they assemble a great team of people around them? A lot of times we see amazing people to be on their team without any funding, right? Or like very little funding because of just not only their vision, but their ability to tell their story and recruit people who, you know, will be their followers. And so I think that's definitely a very positive sign. Another one is just engagement. If it's a consumer company, just engagement in general, right? Like if you turn off marketing spend, will people still want your product? Do they still talk about it? How big is that word of mouth? And so retention and repeat rates and stuff like that really matter a lot to us. That's fantastic. In the diligence process, also talking about the founder, about maybe qualities of founder that you like to see or that is interesting to you, but also how do you judge if a company or an idea is really solving a big problem? 
Like, how do you kind of assess um, how big of a large opportunity? Because of course, I know you, in terms of outcomes, you're looking for a billion dollar outcomes. Yeah, I would say like, one, does it match the inherent trends that are in the market today, right? Because sometimes startups are ahead of their time. You know, it, it's, we looked at investing in VR, for example, back in, uh, took a very deep dive in that back in 2015 and made a conscious decision then was like, you know what, it's still a bit too early. And so like startups who dedicated all of their time for that, like, you know, the world just wasn't ready yet. And so like, I think being able to see if you're in the right trend at the right time matters a lot because you have to have those tailwinds um, to help you. You can cut the market, Tam, in like so many ways. <laughs> I think the biggest takeaway is actually like not taking share of what's completely addressable today, but creating something that can expand the pie as opposed to like how big of the current pie can you have. So what I mean by that is like StockX, for example, one of our portfolio companies, they started off going after sneakers and like sneaker enthusiasts, right? And like everyone bucketed them and to this one space. And like, this was your total addressable market. This is how big you're going to be. And like, this is the biggest outcome it could be possibly, but actually, hey, no, like now they've expanded into other categories. And one of the fastest growing categories is gaming consoles. You know, sometimes it's about really like being able to look into the future and from a market potential is like, what has to go right? Or like, what are other ways that this company could make it very, very big? I think that's a great point. How to think about it is how much market share could you take from competitors, like the current market share, but looking about how does this addressable market or the category actually grow and expand the category per se. Is that kind of accurate? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And sometimes you may even be creating a completely new category. Totally. Right? So like one of our portfolio companies, Function of Beauty, started off as personalized hair care. So it's like personalized shampoo, personalized conditioner. And in the back end, it's actually really sophisticated, advanced manufacturing. It's not just about building a brand. And for them, the expansion is, hey, actually, what does it mean to do mass customization? Like this has never been done before by their competitors who they're supposedly taking market share from, right? Who <laughs> are at first problem bucket is hair care. I think a very different approach. With that example of function and beauty, how do you think about customization, personalization, these complex supply chains? It doesn't sound like on paper, like personalization could scale. When you're looking at companies that for personalization and that are really focused on maybe a personalized experience for the consumer, how do you evaluate in terms of their actual scalability as well? Well, for Function of Beauty, the scalability does matter in the sense that their supply chain is completely theirs. And so they are vertically integrated, right? And so they like to have raw materials, right? And they can actually create personalized units and models um, for the individual customer. But that's being said, customization also comes at many different levels, right? Like, does every consumer want 100% customization at like that exact price point? Or can you have different levels of customization? So they recently launched in Target in January and it has been an immense success. And you know what? That is actually not full customization. You have maybe 50% customization, right? As opposed to going to directly to their website, which you can get 100% if you really want that. When they went into Target, it was, hey, here are the bases where if you have a curly hair, straight hair, 
whatever your base is. And then you can customize by picking, hey, I want volume. I want other type of hair goals and mix it in yourself. So that actually is like a different approach to mass customization. And that has never been done before in retail, in offline retail. And so you're expanding the TAM there, right? In terms of both like addressable market, in terms of different personas of customers, different needs. Totally. That's fascinating. What has been some changes in consumer behavior over this past year or so during COVID that you've been most surprised by? I think all of us were very surprised by that rapid adoption of e-commerce here and just like how much it has accelerated everything in the US. And that's across not just e-commerce in terms of you know, buying things online, but both across like digital health, you know, social media consumption, it just, everything has kind of sped up. And we always thought like, oh, it's going to take, you know, five years to get to where US will be on par with Asia or something like that. And actually, I think this the silver lining of COVID is, is that rapid adoption, both on like the consumer side, but also kind of business side, because people are melding everything together. Has it been harder to think about opportunities maybe in this time because everything is being full brought forward a few years instead in a few months? But since so many categories are now being brought online, is it harder for you to choose which categories to focus on? Definitely in terms of everything is growing really fast, right? And so, you know, whether it's food related or I think for us in this past year, we've also focused a lot on kind of like the e-commerce infrastructure pieces particularly around like logistics, supply chain optimization and other tools, including even the explosion of fintech, like a firm in part like powered a lot of this e-commerce growth as well and enabled consumers to buy more. And so, you know, we definitely have been spending a lot of time, not necessarily just on the direct-to-consumer space, but actually um, companies that enable this ecosystem to be better. That makes a lot of sense. On the e-commerce infrastructure side, you know, I saw a webinar with you about, I think, a year ago. What the one investor was saying was that since Shopify is obviously so big and massive and obviously uh, so many brands use Shopify the service, why even invest in other types of services since Shopify has been so much enablement? I just would love to know if you're a brand today, how you think about maybe the infrastructure moving forward and, and that kind of sentiment. You know, before the whole Shopify expansion, everybody was like, oh, why even invest in e-commerce when Amazon is so big? And, you know, but like Amazon is not going to be 100% of anyone's wallet share and neither is Shopify. And it is increasingly every merchant or brand needs to be multi-channel, omni-channel, right? And like, you know, Shopify is not a destination right now. And so it's not like you know, I will go to Shopify just so I could shop at my brand. Like a lot of people don't even know Shopify is behind that brand, right? And the brand needs to be where consumers' eyeballs are. So whether that is on TikTok or that is on Instagram or that is on their own webpage or that is on Amazon, like you really have to think about where you need to grow your business. And so that is why investing in the infrastructure piece is so important because it is so disjointed and um, for for the end consumer that like you need to find a way to unify something on your front to make your your own experience better and run your business more efficiently. That's a great point about Amazon. In e-commerce, I've heard that, you know, in retail and social media, China is 
uh, pretty quite far ahead of the United States with some of that technology. What do you see as maybe some of, if it's a consumer experience or consumer behavior that you think maybe exists in China that might cross over to the U.S.? What are maybe some pieces about consumer technology that won't cross over as well? I think payments and digital wallets is something that's starting to really cross over, especially with what has happened in COVID. Before COVID, I think a lot of Americans were still hesitant or not know how to use QR codes. But after COVID now, right, like QR codes are everywhere. Like it's on vending machines. It's at your restaurant because the menus, you know, cannot be just passed around, right? Like menus are now digital um, because you can't just keep sharing menus with people because of COVID, right? And so like payment is done digitally there. I think that adoption has really spurred across all these like wallets. And so that's definitely very exciting. I think you know, offline to online shift is something that we spend a lot of time on. And we've seen that that those trends take off quite a bit in China and in Asia. And so, for example, you know, two of our portfolio companies like Slice and Odeco are bringing the traditional offline industries online, right? Like, so Odeco is helping quick service restaurants, starting with coffee shops, um, bring their entire, not only supply chain, but front end user experience online, kind of like how you're democratizing Starbucks to all the independent coffee shops. The same way Slice is doing that for local pizzerias and bringing their infrastructure from offline. You'd be surprised to know the pizzerias today still use fax machines uh, <laughs> to place a lot of their orders. And people actually order mostly through the phone and you call your local restaurant. And so, you know, obviously that has changed quite a bit with COVID too. But, you know, in China, we've seen that rise. And so we're starting to see this catch up across the U.S. as well. And so restaurant owners who are consumers first are now wanting the same tools that they use on the iPhone and those UI UX to bring to their businesses as well. And so it's exciting to see that. We'll continue to invest more in these areas. And we've actually invested in that trend globally. That's excellent. What are some other retail categories that you're right now focused on that could also bring, that, that are currently offline in terms of how they maybe conduct business that you're maybe interested in on how those could evolve and also have a online experience for the customer. One of the most exciting companies we recently invested in is K-Health. And so this is in the digital health space. Obviously, another another big trend from COVID, but they are bringing like the offline experience of going to, you know, a doctor, but all on telemedicine, but also coupled with AI. So what K-Health does is, let's say, Mike, you got a lot of symptoms around like certain types of pain and you go on the K-Health app and you're asking questions and sharing your symptoms, but you're also sharing like who you are as an individual, right? Like you may be in a certain age group, right? A certain area that you live in in the US and all those things matter because it actually shows like, hey, you're actually probably not having a heart attack right now (laughs) because your risk factor is very low according to like the demographic that you're in and age group that you're in. And it's actually like telling you through data, like giving you some diagnoses around like what you could possibly have and give you kind of like a a plan. It's like, hey, you actually have a 10% chance of having a heart attack, but you actually have maybe like 30% chance of X, Y, and Z. After that, you can talk to a doctor if you really need to. But a lot of people actually find comfort in just saying, hey, people like me have these similar symptoms in my similar age group and gender and and demographics. And this is really, really helpful. I could save a lot of time than going to the ER. 
And so they're bringing a lot of what's happening before, you know, traditionally offline where you would probably spend thousands of dollars going to, a, you know, the ER or even like spending weeks to wait to go to your, your primary care physician. But you can actually have like this personalized experience right there on your phone in an app. I love that. That reminds me, when I talked to Daniel Galati, we also talked about K-Health as well when I back on the show. Oh, yes. <laughs> when it was also an investor and kind of walked us through how he invested in K-Health, I believe at the Series A stage. During this COVID period, how are you right now talking to founders? Obviously, it's all remote, but has this kind of affected your decision-making process at all, um, not being able to meet with founders in person? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely tougher because I definitely prefer making that connection in person, but we've made a lot of investments in the past year that, you know, we never thought we would just never meeting the team, but, you know, we still try to meet if if it's physically possible, but like socially distanced. But yeah, I think Zoom has saved a lot of our lives (laughs) and made things a lot easier. Oh, for sure. Is there a particular consumer trend, if it's a vertical or category that before COVID, you weren't paying much attention to. And now maybe in the past six months or or so, now you've really uh, started to focus on it and really dive deep on? Mm, One area I would say is communities. Not that like we weren't investing in communities before, but I think with COVID happening, it matters more than ever because people are so much more isolated from each other and have that need for connection. So for example, we invested in a company called Chief, which is based out of New York City. And they have, you know, over 3000 members now. And it's all about empowering executive women and keeping them there um, and helping, you know, VP level and above or the C-suite women kind of come together, learn from each other and build a better world together, right? And um, it is a membership, kind of like a YPO, but for executive women. You know, before COVID, they were physical space involved where people come together and meet up with their core group, which, you know, it's a, it's a group of like, you know, eight to 12 m- women who meet every month along with a, a core group guide who is similar to like a, a executive coach. And um, with COVID happening, it, it shifted completely virtual for them. And you know what? Like, the community actually really, really embraced it because not only can you actually spend more time together, but like that need is even greater in terms of support, right? A lot of these are working moms. And there's also a lot of challenges that everyone goes through together. Um, and so I've been super impressed by what they have built and continue to build and, and launch more cities across the U.S. And they just recently expanded into Washington, D.C. We've invested in other communities as well, such as Valence out of L.A., which is kind of similar, but there to empower, you know, African-Americans in tech. It's interesting how I've heard community come up a bunch on the show, but really how brands are able to build communities, but not actual businesses that the actual focus of the business is actually building these professional communities. So interesting. I really appreciate both of these examples. Yeah, Fishbowl is another one that was in our portfolio that is around professional communities. You know, the, the actual thesis behind investing in communities stems from, I think, the shift in consumer behavior. For example, before a lot of it was, hey, to show off who I am, I have to wear a designer brand. I have to carry an LV bag, right? I have to do X, Y, Z to show off on Instagram, right? Or show off to my friends. Then it became really like, 
hey, now that I can invest in myself, what can I be spending that on? And it's really around like self-care, but also professionally. And so people are spending a lot of time, money on themselves and developing themselves um, professionally as well. And so it is kind of like a badge of honor in a way to be part of the chief community. This is somewhat related, but when I talked to Rishi Garg last year and he had a really good, he talked about how the shift has become from a me to a we as well, where where folks are, instead of thinking about maybe building an audience for themselves on the social media side, it's now about how to actually almost be gatekeepers in funny ways to actually communities and building out communities to actually help one another uh, succeed, which I also think is also kind of an interesting trend as well. Yeah, I mean, the Palatine community is a great example of that. It's just so powerful and everyone's celebrating each other. If you are part of the Facebook community, if you own a Palatine, (laughs) you probably can see what I mean by that. Absolutely. I'm staring at my Peloton right here as we speak. Um, So mine too. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's great. What's one thing that you would change regarding venture capital? What I've seen at least change from GGV's end in the past years is that it isn't all about the investment team. It is about the platform and everybody that comes together to work with a company. And I see that shift starting to happen. We, you know, started off with mostly the investment team being involved before of like, hey, it's a a partner or it's a principal and they're on the board or something to support a company and give some advice to the founders and also obviously capital. But I've seen the value of the platform team grow. So we've, you know, we have a talent team now, which consists of two people led by Jeff who really supports our portfolio companies in terms of hiring, but also leadership development. They did a founders and leaders program to help not only the CEOs, but like everyone that are emerging leaders and emerging managers inside the company develop. And and we also have, you know, a marketing and PR team that support not just like us as investment individuals, but our portfolio companies and like business development, um, business operations, all to make the portfolio better and our founders with equip them with more tools to succeed and more support. So I'm starting to see that shift happen and it's been working really well, at least from our end, from what I see. I'm very lucky to be a part of this platform because I think the shift isn't about just like you said a me thing but a we as a team it is interesting seeing like this the venture landscape of the kind of acceleration or creation of the platform for the venture fund and offering new ways to help portfolio companies and provide value for them. And that's amazing about how, how you have built your team. That's fantastic. How are you thinking about the current landscape of venture capital? I mean, it seems like we have these huge fundraising rounds. You know, now we have, of course, like pre-seed and micro funds. I mean, how has all this kind of influenced you as an investor? And how do you see like the current landscape? Oh, it has been difficult for sure. I think it's like so much harder now to sift through the noise because like before there may be like very clear signals, right? Like if you hit certain milestones, right? Or like everything gets preempted now because, you know, even if there's no traction, it's like very exciting because there may be only a few winners like that you think can break out, which may or may not be the case. And repeat founders also, right? Are just in such high demand. 
I think there will be some type of correction for sure. And for us, it's like being able to stay close to the companies that we think will win and the teams that will win and continue to build that relationship. But a lot of times, like if you think about fundraising, like we don't just fund a company the moment we meet them. It's actually best for both sides to get to know each other um, over time. You're, you're going to be somewhat married to the venture firm that invests in you because they're going to be on your board and vice versa, right? If you become one of our portfolio companies, it's a very long-term relationships. A relationship, it's not like <laughs> you're just going to exit next year, right? Um, maybe that would happen, but like very rarely. As a founder, there's definitely a lot of hype, but make sure you're, you know, if you do get money and you are raising at like these crazy valuations, just make sure that you can grow into them and like not take too much money that you don't know what to do with because we've seen that other side of the cycle where companies, you know, have raised a lot of money, don't know how to spend the money and then um, spent it all too soon, too quickly, right? Or inefficiently. What are some of your other focus areas in terms of what are some some consumer trends that you're right now uh, really excited about? I know we talked a little bit about telehealth and we also talked about this shift from the offline to online as well as how that has been a lot more prominent as well in China. But I'd love to just kind of hear about some other categories that you're focused on. Yeah, I would say one other category I was spending a lot of time in is uh, also the creator economy. Um, you probably hear this term like all the time. <laughs> but I, I would say ever since we've invested in, in Musical.ly and, and led that Series B and then you know, now Musical.ly was acquired by ByteDance and it's now globally TikTok. The, the rise of creators is something that, you know, is is along the lines of SMB tech, which we invest in, right? Because creators are their own small, medium-sized businesses. They are, um, you know, making a living. And so, like, what are actual ways that we can support that economy? And I think there's still a lot for that to emerge as I think COVID sped that up quite a bit too, right? As you've seen the rise of Masterclass, the rise of TikTok, the rise of, like, different types of influencers. I think the creator economy is not just about, you know, a fashion influencer anymore that, like, people may traditionally think about. It could be that teacher who's teaching online classes and it could be that chef, right? Who's selling their recipes and also meals and, and other things that they're doing. And so I, I, that's definitely something that in the area we, we recently made an investment in and it hasn't been announced yet, um, but we'll continue to do more here for sure. What's one book that impacted you personally and one book that, that has impacted you professionally? I think one of my favorites, though, that professionally that has impacted me a lot to still to this day is Monster Loyalty. It's a book about how Lady Gaga turned her followers into fanatics. And so if, if you can remember, you know, when what the, the rise of Lady Gaga back then was, you know, you, we still remember some of the over-the-top performances, which, you know, she still does today or, or a lot of her dance beats. But she also, you know, had grown like millions of followers around the world, like 55 million Facebook fans, 33 million Twitter fans at her, you know, and that's not even the current numbers, but at, at that time, it's just, that's a huge follower base and her fan base and, and cult following were called little monsters. And I think, you know, to this day, a lot of the lessons and phenomena around fans in that book are, are so highly kind of uh, relevant to the emerging influencers and creators of, you know, today's society and economy. So I love just thinking about like 
the, the, the tactics that were used, right? And, and how that actually applies to brands, both on the consumer side, but even on enterprise, because we're seeing a lot of communities develop, even for engineers and developers, for example. I love that. I'm also thrilled you mentioned that book because I haven't read it, but we haven't, um, no one yet has um, mentioned that book on our book page. And that, that sounds fascinating. I think you've kind of sold me here to have that as my next read. That sounds really interesting. Monster Loyalty, that's fantastic. What is the most recent company that you've invested in and why did you make the investment? You know, one of the most recent ones we publicly mentioned was, was K-Health, which we talked about quite a bit. And that one is just very exciting, not really only just because of the secular trends around telehealth and telemedicine, but really democratizing healthcare, but also reinventing healthcare and the system in the U.S., right? Making it just so much more accessible to everybody, but you really shouldn't be going, having to wait three weeks to just see your primary care doctor. And a lot of people just want to do it via text and ask some questions, right? Um, and have some follow-up, but like don't really need to take time off of work um, just to go in. So I'm really excited to see where they go. They just added pediatrics um, offering to the platform and they have behavioral health on the platform. And, uh, you know, this is definitely something that um, has the potential to become a complete game changer uh, for the U.S. healthcare system. That's amazing. Thanks so much for sharing about K-Health. That's, that sounds like a fantastic company. What is one company that you had the opportunity to invest in, uh, didn't, and then maybe looking back, maybe wishing or thinking that you should have made the investment? Uh, this is like the anti-portfolio question per se. I've gotten a few good responses from this, which has been kind of fun to tell. Perhaps at this time, maybe Discord. We actually backed another company that was, you know, a competitor at the time was actually earlier than, than them. And so it wasn't something that, you know, we would have invested in because of, of the nature of the portfolio. But it was, it is fascinating to see, you know, the rise of what they've built and, and what they've become. And there, it's not easy to build a social media platform. And so the fact that they've done it so well, started with gaming and continue out execute and, and expand to other communities, you know, I give them, a lot of kudos. Absolutely. That's a great response. We previously, I've had, when I had on Rick Heitzman, he said that he passed on Google at the Series B, which is pretty interesting to hear all the stories, um, but that makes a lot of sense. Hey, you know, when we looked at K, we met them back at the seed, right? <laughs> we looked at Series A. You know what? We, we still came in years later. And so it's, it's sometimes it's never too late, right? If we can see it becoming a big outcome. And so I would say, like, never say never. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's one of the great advantages of being multi-stage, I guess. You always have a reasonable opportunity to not miss out, which is great. My final question for you is, what's one piece of advice that you have for founders that are currently looking to raise capital? I would say definitely do research around who, not just like what firms to reach out to, but like which investor on that team to reach out to, right? A lot of tools out there and website and databases you can find like which firm is right for you in terms of stage, right? Like have they invested in your competitor, but also like take the time to research uh, who in that company would make the most sense for you because a lot of teams are not necessarily just general. They do specialize in certain er interest areas um, and who, who can really understand you the most. And 
I think it will be helpful. Robin, thank you so much for coming on the show. This is so fantastic having you. Thank you, Mike. Uh, It was such a pleasure. So fun to work on this together. And there you have it. It was so much fun chatting with Robin. You can follow her on Twitter at Robin underscore P underscore Lee. I hope you all enjoyed it as much as I did. I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone. 